This retreat is on the topic of right effort. It is a sadly neglected factor of the Eightfold Path. You will go to endless retreats about mindfulness, and even that is a different expression than right mindfulness. Quite often, mindfulness retreats are really not about right mindfulness. That's a very special category of mindfulness, which is found only in the context of the Eightfold Path. You almost never go to a retreat called right effort. There are retreats on concentration. They're rare as well, samadhi retreats, even jhana retreats. And I've we've been giving extended jhana retreats lately as well. And I've given many, many mindfulness retreats, right mindfulness retreats, and eightfold path retreats, and of course, one of the big favorites, metta retreats, and the four Brahma Viharas, the metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity retreats. But the sixth factor of the path is vital and is glossed over, mostly, or I would say substantially misrepresented sometimes or ignored. So this is, I'm attempting to correct that by just going back to the basic suttas of the Pali Canon and examining the language of the Buddha for this. It's not going to be an academic retreat. This is a practice retreat, but it's very important that we understand right effort because it is the sixth factor. The one that follows that is right mindfulness, the seventh factor, and then the eighth factor is sama samadhi, right concentration, or in fact, right jhana. If you do not pay attention to the instructions, preliminary instructions under right effort, you really can't carry out the instructions for right mindfulness or right concentration. And they won't go where you want them to if you're not putting in the causes of right effort. Right effort is very different than most of what you will hear in modern psychology or the type of psychological theories we hear in the West for the last century or so. It's different how the Buddha conceived the mind and how he had urged you to work with it is different than you're going to hear in normal psychological theories that have been propagated for the last century or century and a half in the West. So we shouldn't get it confused. So the the primary structure is this, that It is a process of cultivation. And the real, the word that the Buddha used for what we term meditation, of course, he didn't use the word meditation. It's an English word. He used the word bhavana. And this bhavana means to cultivate. It makes to become, but to cultivate. And it's what you would do with a garden, what you would do with a field. You would cultivate. 
There's a lot of similes in the Pali Canon, and you will see some in the Dhammapada, the beautiful collection of verses that was collected primarily for the benefit of lay people. It's kind of the New Testament of Buddhism. And some of them involved the similes of farming, how to direct water, how to channel water to the field. Uh, he talks about this process of channeling water to, as the mind, the mind is the same process as a farmer knows how to get the water from point A to point B. Why am I talking about water, by the way? I don't, we have a problem with water, getting water from point A to point B here. So it's, we're, and you're, we're using the same kind of processes to solve this, and it's very practical. It's not enough to stare down the well. It's not enough to watch this, the process. It's not enough to, to pray for the devas to give water, etc. None of this is enough. One has to figure out how to get that water from 300 feet deep into this monastery. And that requires some very linear and logical thinking and the way the Buddha is approaching the mind is as a mechanism that works by cause and effect. You put in the right causes, you will get the right results. And the same with the skills of farming and cultivation. There's endless discussions about this kind of cultivation. And so what we have with right effort is two aspects. One is to do with negative emotional states, and the second is to do with positive emotional states. And then the Buddha, being a great psychologist and a great teacher, articulates it in a very clear way. So you have the types of emotions and mental states that are to be prevented and removed if they are seen, if you are aware of them. And then there are positive mental states which are to be brought into existence if they're not there and sustained if they are there and deepened and enriched. And so you can see that this is what you do with a garden. There is sweat with a garden. There is very deliberate purpose. The processes of growth of the plants, etc., are causal. They grow because of biological principles, and if you understand the right conditions, you can get them to grow if the right causes are put in. But you don't, it's not a process of, say, appreciation of nature. To go and wander in nature is to observe how things grow naturally. This is not natural. This is deliberate cultivation. And so... You can see a little bit of this, probably the hangover of not too long ago having come from hunter-gatherer societies into agricultural societies. And that transition might explain why at the time of the Buddha across the world you have a change of level of sophistication of knowledge. You have people like Confucius and Lao Tzu teaching very sophisticated attitudes and ethical teachings 
and you have the Buddha, and you have in Greece Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It's an amazing time in history all across the the ancient world of a breakthrough. And the reason why is agriculture. They they had enough leisure time because they had figured out how to grow things and manage things. They weren't just out hunting all day. So this allowed also an application of the idea of cause and effect that they're seeing in manipulating nature around them. They, they're looking at manipulating the mind as well, cultivating the mind. And that's what we're really doing is cultivating our minds. And if we get, if are skillful and encouraged, we can do marvelous things with it. Now, our contemporary society is more interested in in what you can do with your physical body. There is amazing what you can do. You can watch the Olympics, what what they do off a ten meter tower, or all these sports that they play. It's an enormous amount of time and effort they put into training their body. They keep understanding more and more about it. Not so much the mind. The mind, aside from learning skills, practical skills and crafts, which people put enormous amounts of time and effort into. And of course, we all start very early in school. You know, you're four or five years old. They put you into the... And you don't get out the other side of that till it's anywhere from 12 to 20 years later. Incredible amount of time. No, no culture in all of history has ever taken that many people in and put them into a a training process for training you in reading, writing, and arithmetic, (laughs) and systematically training you day after day after day. And they get good results. People can read and write and do, they understand the physical, how things work and so forth. But along the way, no training of the core issues of the emotions. How does well-being arise? You can be a brilliant physicist. You can be a brilliant mathematician. You can be a brilliant poet, etc. But you may be terribly distressed and unhappy and really have no skills when it comes to the emotional dimension of life. And so these are two different areas. And so we've done marvelous things with the body and marvelous things with portions of the intellect. And we are quite unskilled in this, the area that really matters the most. These other areas matter. You need physical skills. You need to manipulate the world. You need to live. You need to feed yourself. Food, clothing, shelter, medicine, all important. That is not enough to actually keep a human alive. Lots of people check out. They got plenty of money, plenty of food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. They jump off a bridge. What is going on? Why would they do that? That's not enough. If you are a have a vision of life, have some sort of positive emotion, then the other things, of course, need to be taken care of, the practical matters of life. But if the central issue is not being taken care of, you may decide it's not worth it. So this is why the Buddha is featuring this. This is the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth is there are emotions. 
you've heard it as there is suffering, but that is primarily addressing the problematic emotional nature of existence. And so the Buddha, in summary, the Buddha features how do you feel is what I think is the most important matter in human existence. It's the most important matter in all being existence, but happens that animals are unlikely to reflect on these truths. The Buddha says, by the way, you know, treat them. <laughs> don't, don't be cruel to them. They're not reflective. You try to leave them in peace or support them if you can, but you have uniquely the capacity to reflect on this and actually change your mind, to stand outside your mind, look at its processing and change it. And not simply through observation. It's not a dispassionate scientific endeavor where you're merely recording and observing phenomena. It's not that. It's a very deliberate interference with human nature. The Buddha says, you know, all, all humans are born with some level of ignorance. That is natural. You are born with problematic or misunderstandings, misapprehensions, or you wouldn't have been born. If you were fully enlightened, you wouldn't have been born. The Buddha himself was not born the Buddha. The Buddha is a, is a title he attains at 35 years old. He is referred to before that, he refers to himself before that as a seeker, as a spiritual seeker, the Bodhisattva. He's born without being enlightened. He's not born enlightened. And so... The very nature of birth, he says, is because one has not finished this process of understanding. And so it's natural to suffer. It's natural and inevitable, absolutely inevitable, if one is not fully enlightened. Emotional distress is just a matter of time. You may have extended periods of time of, of happiness and having not, no significant problems, but it's just a matter of time because it would require you to be deeply learned and wise for you to pass through the inevitable events of life without being pulled into distress by them. So this is the such a jewel in the Eightfold Path, this sixth factor is instructions, clear instructions, an advocacy of effort. I will read out the, the words a few times probably during this retreat that is given, and it's quite remarkable how straightforward it is in its advocacy of effort, that the mind cannot be left in its natural condition. Well, he's advocating that basically all of your waking Consciousness should be devoted and observant and alert to the possibilities of uh, improving the quality of your life, the quality of your emotional life and response to it. It's full-time work. That's why 
most of the population of the planet is never going to set foot in a meditation retreat. They think they have other things to do. <laughs> they, there's no getting away from this. You, you, wherever you go, you wake up beside yourself, you know. <laughs> so this is the work that must be done. You can avoid the work, you can not do it, but you cannot escape the results of not doing the work. So the work is incredibly important. It's, it's the ultimate humane gift to oneself and others. The ultimate humane gift to yourself and others is to have this knowledge, to have processed and worked with this knowledge, and to have the results growing within you. And this transformation, this gardening process, producing the beautiful. Because there is, a, there is an opposite to the distress of ordinary human life. There is an opposite, and that is the beautiful. The Buddha and his enlightened disciples, which include lay people as well as monks and nuns, arrive at a condition of continuous well-being in the midst of the real facts of life, which include illness, aging, loss, and death. All of those things are included in their existence, just like ours, and yet they have arrived at a, at a process and a, a vision which allows them to not fall into this grief, sorrow, suffering. There's a beautiful aspiration. Some people in, in modern times, you'll get arguments about this, arguing about whether that's what you should be doing with your time. The Buddha didn't try to convince people out of it. He gave some persuasive arguments, but he wasn't there to win the case. He really didn't have time to do that. This is not something that you can compel a person to do. It's only something that you can offer. And if they catch a glimpse of it, they will be motivated. But it's not something that... There's no requirement on our part or the part of the Buddha. You don't get any extra points for how many people you convince that this is an important issue. And so that he doesn't really struggle with arguments or anything. He just says, look, this requires a lot of goodwill and effort on your part. I'm just telling you, if you do this, you won't regret it. These are the techniques to use, and this is how it's done. I can only offer this. I don't have to convince you. I'm just offering it. And so these are something to be studied on our own, and it's for our own sake and the sake of others. The idea that you shouldn't be uh, using your time and effort to improve your own personal lot, that somehow that's selfish or something, is a wrong idea. I don't know where it comes from. It's In the time of the Buddha, it's just the whole culture presumed that your job was to create well-being and happiness for yourself. I mean, it was that's natural. I mean, well, how could you not? And then if you have any capacity 
or energy for it uh, the to obviously share the fruits of your practice and understanding with others as well. But it's not likely that you can do much of that if you have not taken care of yourself first. So there is an advocacy. I mean, the ultimate, the perfect situation would be to be beautifully accomplished and then share whatever you can with whoever is willing to to learn. Secondly, is at least to have accomplished something in this emotional spectrum for yourself. A lesser thing would be to offer these things out without having practiced yourself, you know, sort of giving books away without ever <laughs> reading them, <laughs> doing anything. But it's something, you know, somebody is going to get some benefit from this. And the least skillful is you, you neither take care of yourself nor anybody else. <laughs> it's just a matter of levels. You know? But certainly not all of us will be able to have the opportunities for sharing or communicating or many opportunities for that, sharing or our own experiences, our own skills. But we will have the opportunity and we should take the opportunity to internalize this and understand it well. So this is uh, the process of cultivation and we will spend this whole week and when you come out the other side you will have a considerable understanding of what right effort is and these will all be recorded so that you can also go back over them. I also, as I was saying, I, while we're here doing this, this is also being recorded and will be distributed out there on the web so that as many people as possible can also benefit from this offering of the Buddha's teaching. I'm not making this stuff up myself. I'm just trying to set aside, in fact, my own cultural conditioning to actually just listen to what the Buddha actually said and read what he said and try not to make it fit in my cultural paradigm. Because I've found again and again that he has a, a superior understanding and I haven't found the equivalent in my culture. And I have looked high, wide, for it, and I haven't found anything really comparable. So I thought I would try to set aside the normal structures and just look at what he said and just present that. And it turns out it's it's very effective. And that's a word that we want to use again and again. It's not just effort. It's what he's interested in is I want you to cut to the chase. I want you to do things that are the maximum effectiveness. That's what I want, where the energy is going to go into what is effective and pushes it ahead. He's very, inter he's very has a great sense of urgency. You do, how much time do you have? What should you be doing? And keep centered on that because even though the Buddhist cosmology sort of senses that there's got endless rounds of, of 
rebirth and so forth. At the same time, there's this ultimate sense of there's no time whatsoever. You, you've got to get on with this. This is very important now. There's a sense of urgency in this. That your well-being, your understanding, really can't wait, and it shouldn't wait. And we want to get on as quickly as possible with this in the most effective way. So this is what we'll be reflecting on this week. And I'll leave this tonight for an introductory reflection.